We had fake news regarding the approval of a Bitcoin spot ETF earlier this week, but now we're seeing follow through in price as if that news is coming. And there seems to be a consensus that it is even JP Morgan today saying that a Bitcoin spot ETF is imminent. Of course, we also have Elizabeth Warren and her anti-crypto army cracking down on terrorism, writing a letter alongside over 100 Congress people and senators to the White House National Security Advisors. And we have Morgan Stanley ringing in and telling us that a crypto winter is likely coming to an end. This is rapidly becoming our most our most popular stream of the week. It's the Friday Five here with NLW. Guys, I look forward to this one every week. We're going to recap all the important news that's driving these markets. Let's go. Let's go. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, also known as the Wolf of All Streets. Before we get started, please subscribe to the channel and hit that like button. Go ahead and bring on Nathaniel right now. Happy Friday. Good morning. And man, we've got a lot to talk about today. We do. And it's not all Sam. It's a, it's an amazing week. <laughs> I know, although I will say, for whatever reason, people really engaged with our conversation about Sam last week. So it's clear yeah. that people are watching that trial and really interested in what's happening there. It's it's our exorcism. So, of course, you, got, you can't look away. That's what's so bad <laughs> it's about it. It's the slow-moving train wreck that you have to watch and nope. collective catharsis and therapy all at the same time. Really good. Exactly. But we can dig into the stories of this week. And we've touched on some of this, obviously, in the past. I like to put up her her picture just to trigger everyone really early. We've got Elizabeth Warren here. U.S. Senator Warren leads lawmakers to push administration on crypto-backed terrorism. Of course, she's getting the headlines, but there are 102 lawmakers that have signed this. Clearly, there is real interest in Congress and the Senate in pushing this narrative that crypto is funding terrorism. Here's a bit of what she had to say, or the letter did. It's not just her. Given the clear and present danger posed by the financing of these and other militant organizations, we ask the administration to provide additional details on its plan to prevent the use of crypto for the financing of terrorism. Congress and this administration must take strong action to thoroughly address crypto illicit finance risks before it can be used to finance another tragedy. Is this a fair criticism of crypto or is it not? This is why people hate politics in a simple, cute little package, a thing that is very, very tangentially related to an actual tragedy and horror show of uh, modern life becomes a leverage point for someone who's just pushing an agenda that they had in advance. Nothing is new, just to be clear, about the, the bill that's being pushed from what it was being pushed earlier in the summer. It has nothing to do with exchanges that, for example, have been known or proven to facilitate terrorism. It is entirely about just DeFi KYC, right? It's, it's a very, uh, at, at most orthogonally related thing. But in the wake of, uh, of this, this uh, you know, the horrendous attacks, and particularly after the Wall Street Journal writes this piece kind of saying that it's, uh, you know, funded by crypto, it's just exactly what, you know, she needed to uh, go leverage this point. Now, there are a couple of things that make it perhaps less bad than it seems. And, and some of these go back to what we talked about last week. The first is uh, when, it, when it comes to these 102 people, my strong guess, 
Now, I haven't sat down and gone through this with a fine-tooth comb. My strong guess is that about 97 or 98 of those 102 were handed a letter by a staffer that said, uh, you know, this letter says uh, the White House should do something and Congress should do something about, you know, crypto financing terrorism. And on the face of it, that's fine. People are going to sign on yeah. to that. And and I think that this is sort of this point is, is the evidence of this is the fact that there are a number of pro-crypto Democrats who have signed on, right? If the premise of the letter is just, hey, guys, this is an important vector for funding of terrorism in the future. We should make sure we have good policies for that. Totally reasonable. Everyone in crypto would agree with that. Now, what we know is that there's a, a bigger agenda behind it. Here's the other thing about politics. Even these 102 senators know, or you know, the, the, the 102 people who signed on to this, they still know that that's not the same as actually supporting a bill. This is just a, a letter. It's an open letter. It is actually the cheapest most convenient and least committal way to associate your name with anti-crypto terrorism financing without having to actually do anything about it. So it's it's just as toothless as anything else she does, except insofar as it continues to kind of erode and, and distract from other conversations. So I think it is extraordinarily frustrating. It's completely predictable in some ways, but it in and of itself, I don't think necessarily shows a lot of shift in momentum other than what we might already have have seen around this. You know, the the when push comes to shove, this bill will either be ac you know actually kind of advanced or it won't. And when it is or isn't, uh, it, you know, it will be debated on the merits of it then. So it's kind of just a distraction. It's a very annoying one. I do think that it has impacts for all the people who are in the crypto lobby in DC who are yeah. just trying to have you know common sense conversations and move things forward sensibly. Uh, but you know, it, it's probably less impactful than it is annoying. Is my is my, yeah. my kind of short take. I think this goes back to the old adage, never let a good tragedy go to waste, right? Mm -hmm. And especially if you're a politician and you have a specific talking point and you can somewhat superficially attach that talking point to something that's happening in the world, you, you, you go for it. Now, I will say, I agree with you, this should be addressed, right? If crypto is being used in some way to fund terrorism, then sure, that should be stopped. But it's crypto. So they are freezing wallets. They're actually taking action against these things, regardless of what Elizabeth Warren says. And so you can take that criticism and it's valid, but you can't take it in a vacuum because you have to make the same criticism for every other form of illicit financing for terrorism, like pallets of cash being delivered, you know, uh, across the border, which we all know is happening. So I think that it's a unfair singling out of crypto more importantly, when you dig in, I mean, here's the rest of the story. Chainalysis says some reports might be overestimating crypto's role in terrorist financing. And this isn't just an overestimation. I'm just going to read you what Chainalysis had to say, easier than discussing it. We've seen recent estimates related to the attacks on Israel that appear to include all flows to certain service providers that receive some funds associated with terrorist financing. In other words, these total fu include funds not explicitly related to terrorism financing. To the untrained eye, it might appear that 82 million worth of cryptocurrency was raised for terror financing, but it is much more likely that a small portion of these funds were intended for terrorist activity and a majority of the funds processed through the suspected service provider were unrelated. So they're saying that with the estimate that Elizabeth Warren's talking about is 82 million, has an extra few zeros there. It's about 450,000 worth of funds that actually ended up in terrorism affiliated wallets. Yeah, the presumption, the presumption, or the, the yeah, the 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 statistics that this whole kind of story was based on was the idea that this 
this particular kind of exchange money transmitting business in Gaza, 100% of it was uh, illicit funds to, to terrorism, which obviously just isn't the case. No, listen, I mean, this is, again, it's, it's why I, I can't ever get ultimately that frustrated is because there are so many obvious counterpoints. And at the end of the day, you know, uh, people don't make policies, even our terrible system tends not to make policies exclusively on bad information unless you have a really extreme situation. You know, when push comes to shove, those, those reports are going to get uh, identified. I'm glad Chainalysis stepped up and did that. Now, it's an interesting sort of sub story. One of the things that I think a lot of folks are watching about, you know, the Chainalysis the elliptics of the world is to what extent they are sort of defenders of what, what you know, uh, the, the community might say are crypto values versus tools of a surveillance state. And it's a very tricky line to walk. And this is a great example of a company that is the probably the biggest beneficiary of US surveillance of crypto from a financial perspective, still going out of its way to say, that's not really true, you know, and I, I think that's yeah. a, a, an encouraging sign. I, I wouldn't expect anything less from from them, from from what I've seen. You know, the uh, the the CEO of of Chainalysis very famously had a, uh, a, a well, it was calm on his end. It was testy on Elizabeth Warren's end, but they had an exchange at a at a hearing once where she was really trying to get him to make her point about this exact sort of thing, and and he just said it just wasn't do true. It. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she she had the like prepared talking points that she could not stray from. It was a pretty incredible hearing for anyone who didn't see it, because no matter what he said, she just went on to her next question as if he hadn't even answered, which was classic, I think, politics yeah. and trying to, you know, do her stump speech on, on his behalf. This is a pretty big story. Number two here, Gemini DCG sued by New York for alleged 1.1 billion crypto fraud, right? So Gemini being included here, we've only seen sort of the DCG side uh, previously, but uh, they're being sued by New York's top law enforcement officer for allegedly defrauding customers of 1.1 billion, escalating legal woes for two companies hit hard by last year's plunge in cryptocurrency markets. This is a uh, civil; it's not criminal for everyone to be clear. And we know that uh, that this office, the New York uh, District Attorney General, has it out for crypto, and is kind of part of the uh, Elizabeth Warren anti-crypto army. But there's something here, right? Yeah. I mean, so uh, there, there's a couple ways to look at this. The, the question is, I mean, if you, you could go kind of hyper real politic and ask what the likely impact of this is going to be. And to some extent, then the question becomes, is there any real new information or new accusation? Or is it just basically the New York Attorney General saying the stuff that everyone already saw we consider fraudulent, you know, and, and I think it's, uh, you know, f whatever. It's it, I'm not minimizing the seriousness of this for the uh, for for the the plaintiffs here or for the defendants here, but the, you know, it really isn't some new smoking gun type of information, at least uh, on my kind of initial read. It's not a, uh, you know, a, a Sam kind of case where there's some new thing uh, that that's been addressed. In fact, I think in some ways. What seems more concerning to me around Genesis and DCG right now is some of the stuff that's been brought up at the SBF trial that raises questions about what was known when, you know, regarding those loans. Um, you know, but the, the, again, going going back to just you know real talk about this, this is the sort of kind of you know gray area, debatable, fightable that a, a lot of these battles are going to take place in quiet courtrooms and behind the scenes, and you know. 
I think in general, DCG has been on the drag it out until crypto markets are good enough that we've saved ourselves kind of plan for a very <laughs> long time. And this is just <laughs> throw throw one more thing on the pile. You know, maybe the maybe the amount that Bitcoin needs to hit or the, the number that Bitcoin needs to hit just went up a little bit to, to save them. But that's their whole plan has been waited out, you know, for, for as long as they can. I mean, Gemini has even said that in their public kind of, you know, accusations against them. Yeah, I think the sort of additional information here, as I said, is that Gemini is being named and there's some yeah. egg on the face of the Winklevi uh, twins because they've sort of been the aggressor pushing against the uh, evil empire of DCG. And now it looks like at least uh, Letitia James thinks they're kind of complicit in this fraud that they knew Genesis had the hole in the balance sheet. We obviously saw the argument over the 200 plus million dollars that the Winklevoss twins had uh, withdrawn from Gemini Earn a couple months ago. Of course, some said that that was them front-running bad news that they knew and still telling their customers that everything was fine. They quickly responded and said, no, that wasn't even us. Actually, this was shoring it up and putting money into an insurance fund. But clearly, there's a lot of uh, he said, she said going on here. And at the end of the day, it seems that the biggest players knew that there was something wrong at Genesis. Yeah. We saw it in the FTX trial, as you said, Carolyn uh, saying, listen, Genesis said we need 500 million, whatever the number was, to shore up our balance sheet. Can you guys send that to us? She sends a fake balance sheet. What this speaks to, to me, is the like endless clarity we're getting on how incestuous the big players of this industry were in this yield-chasing environment that crushed us last year. 100%. I mean, so he here's the thing. And again, maybe maybe I'll be clear about why I don't think this is that big of a change. I don't really think anyone was buying the, you know, Tyler and Cameron <laughs> being the white knight kind of sure. thing, right? This is sure. this is for a for for some time now, I think that the average feeling in, in crypto has been a plague on all your houses, burn it to the ground, you know, go to jail, pay your fines, whatever you need to do, just get the hell out of the way and let us build back you know, the, the way that we were supposed to. And and so it's sort of, you know, I do think that it, it's more confirmation <laughs> or more or kind of evidence in the column of that sort of perspective. But, you know, yeah, I, I think that your analysis that it's sort of, you know, f further evidence of, of what has become real clear about about the last year is, is quite clear or is quite true. Yeah, of course, uh, you have to point out this tweet, Sil Silbert, that everybody's dunking on and brought back November 23rd, 2021. It's my turn, Sam, to which uh, Sam gave the big, uh, big I, few, few eye emojis. Everybody just sort of, uh, you know, now saying it's my turn, Sam, implying that maybe it's uh, Barry's turn to get called in by the courts. <laughs> Not yeah. exactly what he wants his turn to be. But of course, I think the big question then becomes, will the lawsuit against DCG impact GPTC's chances of an ETF conversion? Because DCG is the parent company of Grayscale. And we all know, once again, there was an incestuous relationship, certainly among all DCG entities, Genesis loaning to Grayscale, loaning to Genesis, and all of these other players. Will this affect it? Well, I would say the market doesn't think so because we're still seeing that GBTC discount disappearing with time. And I would say that maybe it uh, affects Grayscale in some way, but I don't think it affects a Bitcoin spot ETF in general. But uh, most analysts who are looking at that, we have a lot of pundits who are saying they'll never do it, but we have a lot of experts saying that this is a nothing burger.
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. I, th- I think I think that the market is going to be the the actor to punish DCG when when the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust converts. I think all that money is going to convert and flow out and flow into iShares or you know Valkyrie or whoever. Or like like you know the the I, I would say that the GBGC BlackRock Grayscale yeah, BlackRock. Let me the choose. Average, <laughs> the average I think analyst position at this point is that it's far more likely that a big swath of these things get approved all at the same time. And they sort of let the market decide. Then they hand, you know, the the keys to the kingdom to just one. Um, also, if they do decide to hand the keys to the kingdom to just one, it certainly is not going to be uh, grayscale. So, you know, listen, it's it's there. There are real serious problems. I would not be a long term bull on that business in a lot of ways. But it's not going to be because they're not allowed to convert. I don't think. I think it's going to be because rational market actors are going to say no, thank you, and move to somewhere else. Yeah, I think consensus is that DCG is a uh, bit of a train wreck and it's one that's probably priced in. That's how I feel about it. Everyone's expecting something bad to happen over there. So if it does happen, we're going to move on with the Black Rocks and Arcs of the world and, and life will continue. Yep. And then we get to SBF. What's happening at the SBF Sam Bankman Freed trial? I think that uh, last week we covered Gary and Carol- Caroline rather uh, extensively, but now we have Nishad Singh and, of course, Zach Prince from BlockFi being, I guess, the star witnesses of this week that we haven't spoken about. I know you've been following this closely. Is there anything brand new that we're seeing here? SBF lawyer pokes holes in Singh's story on FTX spending. And, of course, just to get these stories out of the way, the Sam Bankman-Fried trial is revealing crypto's amateur hour ways. And I think that's very clear, circling back to the incest that we were speaking of before. But let's let's talk about what's happening in this trial any new revelations? Yeah, I would I would view this these two two testimonies uh, as less revelatory and more very specific parts of the story for uh, for the prosecution that are not going to be particularly good for the defense. So when it comes to Zach Prince, obviously the former CEO of BlockFi, the you know in some ways the the main thrust of that it, it was it was actually less about what the prosecution said in this case and how poorly the defense handled it that i think will be the lasting impact the defense at one point went through a very long sort of 40 minute extended line of questioning around a set of loan documents and what they were clearly trying to establish was that basically uh, it was blockfi's risk management department's fault that these things happened you know effectively the argument was you are so stupid, you should have known our client was defrauding you, kind of more or less. That was the argument. And at the end of the culmination of this big sort of long, you know, classic, whatever, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, defense presentation, Zach Prince had to point out that the documents that they were talking about were for a loan that they hadn't approved. That they did approve loans later, but that that one that they were literally trying to make their case that the risk management department had said, yes, it's too stupid to use FTT as collateral unless there's a shitload more of it and other collateral too. So no, we're not going to approve that. And Zach Prince agreed with his risk management department. So it was just, it it was, uh, you know, for people who are in the court, they actually said that in some ways it was even more embarrassing than other kind of moments just because it was so it's dumb, you know, on the part of the defense. So that I think is, you know, the, 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 it, they, they almost just lost uh, an entire plank of the potential defense, which is other actors really knew what was going on. And they, you know, they, they should have made different decisions when it comes to Nishad. I actually think that in many ways, 
the biggest impact will be with the jury and on sort of a, a human level. I don't really think there is particularly a lot new that came out with Nishad's testimony that wasn't already covered by Gary or Caroline. Caroline, I think, really did the the, the biggest work in showing just how many points along the way uh, you know, sort of Sam had been running the show and determining exactly what they were and weren't going to do. And Gary kind of added this, uh, you know, almost a technical aspect to that, like how they encoded that in the actual platform itself. Nishad, in many ways, just showed this sort of human side of, of a guy who was very clearly, you know, uh, doing stupid things, but at least feeling guilty about it. Not that he came off as sort of like super, um, uh, you know, likable or anything like that, but it didn't matter. It just the fact that he showed some remorse, the fact that he was angry, the fact that he was frustrated, as opposed to you know the picture that's emerging of Sam is just as this complete sociopath. And and I think that that's yeah. going to really stand out to the jury. Now, the the last thing that I think is interesting, you, you might have seen all these stories that say. You know the defense finally got a uh, got a got a, a yeah. blow in. Man, that is the most um, because they haven't been able to write that story exaggeration <laughs> in in this trial. Like they literally, the what this entire thing is based on is that apparently at some point Nishad told the prosecutors in an interview in December or January that he was somewhat hazy on what June and July 2022 were like. And, you know, listen, I do think that Nishad was clearly still a little ass covering in, in a way with this. Um, and it and it sort of it stood out. But that's different than the defense landing some major blow that just, you yeah. know. Yeah, <laughs> it's like hey, they finally got one jab in in the seventh round after taking an absolute beating and, and yeah. happened to still be standing up. So good job. The, some of the funny revelations surrounding Nishad, though, where they said, you know, he really wanted to quit. He really felt bad. He was going to quit. He obviously didn't quit, guys. And just like a month before FTX collapsed, he took a loan directly from FTX for a $3.7 million house that he bought yeah. in Washington. This is yeah. a shot. So I think, that's, saying, I think that's the most damning thing. Sometimes, huh. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I think that's, I think that's the most line. damning piece of that for sure. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, yeah. Go ahead. No, I, just, I, think, I think that like, <laughs> look, to do the right thing, uh, it requires two things. It requires you to know what the right thing is, and then it requires you to do the right thing. <laughs> and it sounds like Nishad at least had half of that equation, unlike some of the others at FTX, but he still didn't do the right thing. And that's why he had to plead guilty to all these charges as well. Yeah, and he'll, and he'll pay for it. The, the amateur hour, by the way, part of that story is worth just mentioning because it shows how difficult it was for all of these companies to vet any of this information and also how hard it was even to get an auditor, right? Paradigm, BlockFi, Genesis, and other companies did not have access to audited financial statements prior to investing or loaning billions to FTX, et cetera. And this comes from the Zach Prince testimony. He said, effectively, any and all financial information that the potential borrower was willing to share with us is all that we had to go by. So he's literally saying, and this aligns with what Carolyn said about the fake balance sheets, Nobody's auditing it, auditing it. Nobody's willing to audit it. Of course, everybody wanted to believe that they were giving uh, the boy genius their money and he was going to turn it into multiples. But the fact is that they were all doing these incestuous loans again on, well, if you say it's okay, then it must be, right? Yeah. Here's, my, here's the balance sheet for my Excel that I will give you to prove what I have. Now give me a few billion dollars.
Probably a screenshot of it as well, not even the actual <laughs> chart. Now, the the other the one other story that I just remember that I think is is actually quite telling and may also resonate with the jury was in 2021, FTX had 950 million in you know legitimate revenue, right? Tra- trading fee revenue, and Sam really wanted it to be a billion, apparently, and he had Nishad go back and backdate a set of contract uh, of contracts between. Um, another one of Sam's companies and FTX, where those other companies paid FTX $50 million for staking Serum, which was, of course, a token that Sam also made up. And so that's how FTX went from $950 million to a billion. And I think that what's so telling about that is how preposterously unnecessary it is. Like again, a, a big part of the a big part of the question for these juries are going to be, and and what Sam is trying to prove is, is this a person who got themselves in over their head and made a set of bad decisions that slowly trapped them in an ever increasingly bad situation? You know, which, which is basically kind of the sense that or the feeling that that Caroline tried to give. Or was this sort of masterminded from the beginning? And we've heard about how you know these things were coded into the platform to allow Alameda to have a negative balance all the way back in 2019. Certainly seems like the beginning. But the egregiousness of, of making up these fake staking sales just to go from 950 million of legitimate revenue to a billion is so so telling of the callousness and the the lack of caring that I, I really think that even though it seems silly and is less egregious than some of the other things that were done, it'll stand out to the care, you know, as speaking to Sam's character. I, I agree. The guy was just a fraud from the beginning. It was all about his ego and all about the perception. And that's why he had to be with Tom Brady and Giselle and Shaq and Larry, you know, uh, David. Clearly, this was just about stroking his ego. Ego, He could do no wrong. And nothing he did should have been considered bad because in his mind, you know, ju- the ends justified the means. It's really crazy town, man. It really is. Yeah, some, so now, some, sometime after after some of these class action lawsuits are done, maybe I'll, go, I'll give you guys the ranking of which of these celebrities were the most fun to work with and the most sincere and serious. <laughs> yeah, people. I don't think people even know here like how how involved you were in the marketing side there no. and how surprised you were. But one day, I maybe will uh, do a separate show to get to yeah. that. Of course, our next story here, which. Uh, everybody, this is number four. Everybody sort of watched live uh, on Monday when we were doing Macro Monday was the news that the Bitcoin spot ETF had been approved. It was fake. It was Cointelegraph, a single tweet that came out, sent the market flying from roughly 28,000 to 30,000. Within moments, seemingly everybody found out that was fake and it went down. I think this speaks to an environment where these news sources not just in crypto, but maybe particularly in crypto, uh, are much more concerned with being first than being right. The Cointelegraph chief uh, editor was on a panel right after this and said, hey, man, this isn't our fault. That's just the way the world is. We wanted to be first. We found it in a random Telegram group. We went ahead and printed it because YOLO. Um, And by the way, you guys are idiots for believing it. We're not really idiots for posting it. I mean, listen, that's hyperbolic, but that was the gist of this. But this did give us, I think, at least as far as price action, an idea of what could happen if we do see a Bitcoin spot ETF. And maybe that's the story people want to talk about. I actually never do this on Fridays. I brought a chart just because you can see what happened when that uh, move happened a few days ago visually. Today, we've actually seen price go higher than that fake ETF news pump, although it's sitting lower, it actually did manage to go higher. So 
clearly whatever happened got people excited for what would happen if we see this approval. Yeah, so I, I think you're right that we shouldn't spend too much time on, you know, lamenting the fact that modern news rewards speed rather than accuracy, because we all know that and we're not going to solve that here. I do think what's the most interesting part of the story is what it says or suggests about what will happen when an actual ETF is approved. So there are um, the, the the line of thinking that I saw from a lot of folks, people like Alex Kruger, who, you know, I, I, I always respect what he has to say, even if I disagree. Uh, you know, they pointed out that the broad perception has been that a spot ETF approval is priced in and that it suggests that it is significantly not priced in. Now, uh, that there's certainly plenty of evidence of that. I mean, we, you know, ripped up 7% and then back down and, you know, $100 million of liquidations along the way. The question for me, and, and I'm interested in your take on this, Scott, is to what extent the, it's almost like both parties are right, the people who think it's priced in and the people who think it's not, in the sense that it is inevitable that there will be some absolute rip to some level on the news that it's happening, but that then when push comes to shove and the actual thing happens, it's likely to kind of recede or you know stay at some point, that it's, it's not going to be some massive inflows that jack the price up another you know 30% or something like that, but there's probably 5, 10, 15, whatever, whatever percent it is where you know the bottom resets a little bit because we know this is coming. I mean, what, what's your take on, on that? I share the same sentiment. Dave Weisberger actually on Twitter Spaces broke this down very well yesterday. He said, you know, there's three kinds of market participants, the speculators, those are the ones who spaz and buy immediately when they see the news. Then there's like the more sp swing traders Then there's the longer term investors. And the reaction of the market will be based on what each of those people do in, in their timeline. So basically we saw, you know, the speculators, by the way, this wasn't new money. If you looked, altcoins got destroyed against Bitcoin. So this was the old uh, washing machine of crypto where a bunch of people said, Bitcoin's better than altcoins right now. I'm going to sell my altcoins into Bitcoin, right? So I yep. don't think this was uh, a bunch of RIAs advising their clients in that 20 minutes to get in on Bitcoin and new fresh money coming in from institutional capital on the sidelines, right? So I think that we see what we saw the other day on steroids. Exactly yep. what you said. Maybe yep. a move to 35 or 40, right? This huge kind of move. And then people say, okay, we have an ETF. Price slowly comes down. And then fundamentally over time, much like the Bitcoin halving, which you know that supply reduction takes six to nine months before it actually affects the market outside of the narrative of it affecting the market. And then maybe we see sort of that sustained growth based on real volume coming in, uh, real AUM coming into a BlackRock ETF and these things. So I think it aligns well with what you're saying uh, yeah. is that we'll see a big pump. Then we'll see a bunch of people take profit because they'll say that's it. And you'll get all these shorts and longs liquidated on both sides. And then we'll take some time to see, see what happens, what happens afterwards. I think that it feels likely to me that, or, or I guess one of the biggest questions rather is what is happening in the world around it? Because one of the most important things that happens when a, when, when the Bitcoin price rips up is how the media frames it. Right. And if the media frames it as just, you know, this goes up because of ETF hype, I don't think that that pushes anyone new in. If we get a, you know, if, if uh, there's been some big geopolitical event the same day that the SEC happens to approve it and you see Bitcoin ripping in the, the opposite direction of other markets, a different story gets written, you know, and, and I think we've seen that a couple of times this year. So that's kind of what I'm keeping an eye on is, is what sort of surrounds the news uh, of whatever kind of little jump we have there.
Yeah, I think that's right. But uh, the moral of the story is don't fall for fake news until you see it reported very widely and quickly. But hey, it was fun to watch and fun to be reporting in real time. I can I can tell you that. So at least it led to some entertainment. The 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 I guess this will be the uh, fifth story, right? We got the yep. the final story here. Uh, we are going to do an honorable mention at the end. But will crypto spring ever come? Now, interestingly, I wrote uh, a crypto spring newsletter just last week. And literally gave the exact same uh, analogies as Morgan Stanley ended up giving this week. I'm not saying they're copying me, but clearly there's a lot of people who are now debating the seasons of crypto. I've been of the mind that Crypto Spring has been here for a very long time. Mark Yusko uh, discusses this very well by pointing out that weather in spring sucks. Yes, right? uh, exactly. Just, People just, forget just, how much just, spring yeah. sucks. Yeah, spring yeah. sucks. So yeah, winter is horrible, but spring, most of spring is terrible. And you have a beautiful day, then you have a terrible day. And you have a, a sunny day, and then it snows a week later. And that's what I think we've been experiencing here. Whether it's crypto spring or not here is not why we highlighted this as a story. It's that a article called Will Crypto Spring Ever Come is coming from Morgan Stanley. To me, that's the story. It's yet another massive institution really digging into the nuance of the four-year cycle and what happens with these each year in crypto. I think that's the story here, really big. I think too, so I completely agree. And and I think that the, 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 so a couple things. One, it's coming from Morgan Stanley. Two, it's actually a fairly useful article. This is the type of thing that a person who was at you know, Morgan Stanley or Bank of America or any traditional financial institution could send to a person who's not really paying as much attention to Bitcoin and crypto and say, this is a pretty good job of explaining kind of what this cycle actually means. It's a useful analogy, in other words. And I think that they do a good job of, you know, in whatever it is, 400 words, uh, you know, kind of crisply explaining it. So it's, it's not just that they wrote it. I think it's actually a useful piece as opposed to a lot of these things. So that's one part that I think is, is, is notable. The other part is that uh, I think in some ways the, um, uh, a measured sort of rational markets are thawing, keep like one little tiny piece of your brain take, uh, from Morgan Stanley is a hell of a lot more useful than a if they had blown it out and said you know the bull is back and and like kind of you know if if they had gone too far because that just looks like analyst hype that looks like it's trying to get people to 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 share it this feels like a piece that was written because they're actually trying to understand where in the cycle we are and what evidence we have not that they're trying to sort of make big buzzy social media headlines and I think markets and traditional markets especially can smell bullshit. And so when you have this sort of more measured piece, it contributes to this overall sense of, you know, we are past the worst point. And there are these people who are sort of lining up around the edges and starting to kind of, you know, uh, replace their chips on on this table. And, you know, maybe I should start paying attention again. And I think that's a much healthier place to be than sort of either, you know, assuming it's dead or assuming it's, you know, we're, we're so back. And guys, I think it's worth reading if you do want to dig into it. We won't do that now, but it does offer actually metrics about what's happened in past cycles, how far the with the drawdowns tend to be, when you can gauge that maybe the bottom is in based on the bounce. They really do, they really dove in and did this right, which I found very impressive. And go ahead. No, I, I really dragged this. Uh, I, I did this for I do a long read Sunday on the show on Sundays where I take an article and then sort of analyze it. And I, I really tortured this analogy, uh, <laughs> extending it. And I think, you know, so for me, the thing that I was sort of talking about on that is part of what shapes 
the transition from spring, you know, when, when we move from very early spring where it's just the thaw to late spring and the beginning of summer, I think in a lot of ways is the stories that non-crypto market participants are resonating with that bring them in. And if you look back at other cycles, there's always a Bitcoin story, but then there's other things as well, right? So in 2020, we had Bitcoin leading the way with great monetary inflation thesis, but that was quickly followed by DeFi summer for the de- for the DGENs in the space to get their hands dirty and get excited again, which was followed then by NFTs for normies, right? This year, we're very, we're just starting to see the first kind of shadows of what the Bitcoin narrative might look like, right? With people talking about geopolitical instability and Bitcoin being a flight to quality with that. We have no idea yet what those sort of resonant narratives uh, are going to be either for the sort of like, you know, the insane internal traders or for the normies. And I think that as is those things, as we start to see more contenders for those, uh, for those stories, that's when you're going to know that, the, that we're kind of transitioning once again. Yeah, I'm putting my money on RWA because it's got that's, a new three-letter title, contender. Real World yes. Assets. My yeah. leading, that's my leading fighter right now. Guys, we're going to do a very quick honorable mention. I know that we're way over our intended time here, but there's just a lot to talk about. We have to mention this. SEC drops charges against Ripple CEO Garlinghouse Chairman Larson. To be clear, they're still pursuing the central Ripple case, so any of the bad takes you saw that the SEC was completely dropping this are false. But the SEC is clearly capitulating here once again on another part of this case. Uh, Seemingly, Chris and Brad are out of uh, trouble here for any personal responsibility or liability. And you just love to see the SEC continuing to take these small losses. Yeah, I mean, this one is fascinating. We could have done the whole show on this. You know, basically, (laughs) when the 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 judge's most recent decision was that the SEC was not allowed to appeal part of the of the 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 case that had been decided so far, they had to wait until this piece of the case was done. Basically, the 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 executive piece. And so, the read that I've seen from people who I think are the most sort of dispassionate is that the SEC clearly wants to have the fight around the the judge's interpretation of howie and and how they were going after that as opposed to uh you know executive culpability and they want to start having that now i mean that reads to me like that is a fight that gensler wants to pick before he's potentially out of office so i would expect more not less fireworks because of this decision at least in the short term that's a that's a good take because i think you're to your point they're focusing on what they can win and getting rid of all the nonsense that might deflect from from that case i think that's absolutely correct guys that's our that's our friday five plus kind of half we'll call that within the friday five and a half today because we did get in uh brad and chris there at the end with gary this happened apparently on gary gensler's birthday by the way so twitter was really excited to see him take love a to small loss on his birthday yeah yeah i'd love to see it once again guys you can see hear this uh, on both of our audio channels both of our youtube channels and you get to go and hear uh, nlw give a better introduction after actually <laughs> listening to it and knowing what we ended up talking about so so worth checking out there and of course his daily show and i do love your long reads on sunday i think that's great everybody should should check that out especially i'm not here on sunday so you got to find something to listen to man thank you so much uh appreciate the extra 15 minutes that we did here i hope you guys enjoyed it uh and that's all that we have i guess for today so man i'll see you uh next friday later guys bye guys Let's go.